I went to Versailles for the first time. <gasps> yes. And um, I, we walked through the entire castle. And when we got out, I said, so what happened with the French Revolution thingy? <laughs> <laughs> History, I'd like to follow me. Welcome to Hilf History. I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. And my guest for this episode is Crystal Adams, a stand-up comedian here in Los Angeles who assigned me the subject of French literature. And then a couple of weeks before we were scheduled to record, her car was stolen. Ah, shit, right? So she asked if we could record at her place. And I, of course, always come when requested. She said she had a great place in her house for us to record. Very comfortable, very quiet. And indeed she did. (laughs) Just wait until you hear where we end up. Before we jump in, however, I want to say thank you. Our last episode, The Radium Girls, smashed download records. Your support, shares, ratings, reviews, all that stuff are making a huge difference and we really appreciate it. Follow us on Instagram at Hilf Podcast to keep up and see what we've got cooking for the future. But first, a story from the annals of French literature that will remind you that giving head is not always a good thing. <laughs> Let's get started. The picture of where I am right now is is pure sex, truly. <laughs> I am literally in bed with Crystal Adams. I am in the nest of love that she shares. I'm assuming with your husband. I assume yes. you share this one bed. Um, we, I have all of my podcast stuff set up, and um, and we we made a fuck date. Yeah. I arrived at the appointed time for the fucking that we had prearranged. Like right on time. We walked right past her husband, straight into the bedroom, and now we are perched uh, lovingly on the bed. You're half dressed. I'm mostly dressed for now, but we'll see. We'll see how things go. Um, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks not for just ha- in your house, but in your bed. Yeah, in this is bed. so gracious of you. Um, I am with Crystal Adams. She is a stand-up comedian. Um, also, I looked into it. You are a consulting producer on Lego Masters. Oh, I had done. Yes, I did oh my that. God, once. I love yeah. that. Show. I love that show. What did you do for Lego Masters? What does what does a consulting producer do? Um, it's just a way for um, people that don't want to pay a lot of money, like shows that don't want to pay a lot of money, to hire writers without calling them writers. Got it. So yeah, and I, it was just like kind of like a one day but thing, but it was very fun. And are you a Lego fan? That I, was that a prerequisite? Not at all. No, actually, it's it's a little. <laughs> I'm like, do I share the sad thing? <laughs> oh no! Okay, do it. We like. <laughs> we're already in bed. Let's get sad. It'll it'll get us somewhere. We'll go up from here. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, so I had actually previously worked on a TV show, and I just started talking about this on stage actually, because I got because I was working on a, a TV show as a writer, and not Lego Masters on another one. And I got fired from it. And it's a bad show. Like, it's not a good show. And I think, like, that's what hurts the most, right? Is that when you get fired from writing on a bad show, that it's a bad already. It's like like getting dumped by an ugly boyfriend. You know, it's like, how dare you? You leave me? Yeah, look at your teeth. You, (laughs) your your teeth left me. Okay. And then you uh, are on Laugh After Dark. You have a set 
um, yes. on Amazon Prime. Yes. You, just for laughs. And I listened to your recent album, Ain't I a Wombat. Oh, thank you. Laughed out loud a lot. <laughs> thank you. Snorted. I think it's absolutely great. I encourage everybody to go listen to it. Um, what am I missing? Do, are there any like credits that I'm overlooking or things in your introduction that you like to include? I mean, my favorite job was working um, on The Circle at Netflix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. Um, so again, I was consulting producer, but it was, it was the same situation. I was a writer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it was it was amazing. Like I was flown to Manchester in the UK um, and I got put up in a uh, in a, a little apartment. And then every day I would come in and I would watch. I would watch TV and talk shit about it and then write that down because they had to like weigh in on like, oh, do Americans get this joke? That's really why I was hired. It was like, they want to make sure Americans get the humor. And you are the representative. Yeah. A perfect representative. (laughs) But it was insane the amount of times where they would come back and be like, Americans never say this. And I'm like, Um, I literally wrote it. (laughs) You said that you are leaving Los Angeles and heading to New York. Yes. When does this happen and what is waiting for you there? Hopefully uh, we are moving in January. And I think what is waiting for me really is just, I I honestly don't know all the things, but when I am there, I feel creatively alive. There you go. And I feel like I have found people there that would, that I could see and I would see on a real bit. See, the thing is, is that I have a lot of people here in LA that I like and love and would love to hang out with. The problem is we don't see each other, Yeah. right? You have to get on somebody's schedule. My car was stolen, you know? So then like, you know, it's just like difficult to get to places. And so I just really see that like, especially without a car now, my life is going to be even smaller, even, even if I can emotionally like give, like, you know, have the will, like put together the will to actually get out and make a plan to see somebody. My life has just quite naturally become smaller because I don't have the means to be able to visit people the way that I, you know, and in, in the amount that would, I would need in order to feel like I have real community. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I was in New York for three weeks and I saw, I saw one person like three days in a row, Yeah, you know, and I'm, that could be like kind of a fluke, but it kind of just the ease with which it happened felt really, it like, it lifted my spirits to just be like, oh, if I have a friend in this area or in this area, it wouldn't be that difficult to go and meet up with them and hang Mm -hmm. out and just like spend like a, you know, a few hours or a day just dicking around, you know, like, whereas here it feels like, I don't know, like, could I just see where a day took me, you know? like Well, have you, have you lived in a winter climate? <laughs> no, and that's because what... <laughs> what's going to happen is you're going to have this amazing idea, and you might go in the in the fall. And I've never lived in New York, but I have lived with seasons uh-huh, yes. <laughs> that are unlike here, and uh, nobody does shit between yes. like. And you're moving on January, so I'm doing it on purpose. Well, and you know what? Maybe people in New York are different because it's more, they say, more walkable and like, who knows, like whatever the condition of the subway is. But like, I'll tell you in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's shut down. It's shut. But I that- mean, or because you got to think about, okay, I want to hang out with my friend. Love my friend. Mm-hmm. And goddamn, it's so dark and it's so cold. Yeah. And I got to hang out with my buddy. And then you have to scrape the literal ice off the windshield of your car. Mm-hmm. Let it warm up. 
go through this death trap of traffic in the city where some people know how to drive on ice and some people don't. And there's always a brand new crop of 16 year olds yeah. any given winter that you have <laughs> rolling around out there. Your hands while you're waiting for your, it's so bad. The cold's so bad. So yes. if you don't have a car and you're going to the subway in that horse shit. Yeah. Girl, I well, hated the winter so much. I hated the winter so much. But see, so that's much. exactly why I'm going in the winter. That's why I want to go in the winter. Because Jumping I don't, in. exactly, I want to rip the band-aid off. Okay. I, I've lived in Southern California my entire life. Okay. I don't want to have rose color, you know, color no. glasses at all about the situation. Mm-hmm. And when you say we and let's go, it is because you are not going alone. You are going with your husband. Yes. Fabrice. Fabrice, yes. Fabrice. Yes. It is in your set. I yeah. should know that because it's not pine salt. It's not, it is not. It's not Febreze. <laughs> Febreze. Febreze. And actually, he uh, is part of the inspiration for the subject of our Hilf today because <laughs> I reached out to Chris. I said, do you want to be a guest on my podcast? She said, of course, come into my bedroom. Um, and then we get to the subject. And you said that you wanted me to research French literature. <laughs> and you said specifically it's because your husband is French. Uh-huh. And you said, I could ask him. <laughs> yes. But I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, I, and I love that. And that has informed the manner in which I will be fucking <laughs> this history for you, Crystal Adams. Because I, I just can't wait. Because I, And that we're in your bed makes this so much I didn't know when I started the research that we would be sitting in your um, marital sheets uh, as we discuss this. But in a way, <laughs> I have been in your marital sheets <laughs> from the very beginning. Tell me about your French husband. Tell me your, your love story. How did you meet? Uh, we actually met on Tinder. <laughs> oh, la la. Yeah. Do you speak French? Um, Are you a Francophile? I, I am learning French. Okay. But not because I have a French husband. It's because I'm pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, I actually speak a little French. And it is Ooh, 100% because I'm pretentious. Right? How am I going to fuck this French literature? Because French literature is a huge subject for mm-hmm. one little old podcast. And I'd be glad to face dive with Crystal Adams into <laughs> anything that you asked me to dive into. But I thought That's too much. To, to bite off. But because here's the deal. By by doing the three musketeers, here's what I think I will give you. Okay. <laughs> I'm hoping is um, a way to really like chew the fat around the fromage tray mm-hmm. with your husband and uh, perhaps any pretentious French friends he may have or that you may make along the way. <laughs> um, because by studying the three musketeers, first we get French history mm-hmm. and French revolution history. And really what I found is the great French literature all touches back to the French revolution until you really talk about the French revolution. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get a grip on yeah. the literature part anyway. So what I'm going to do, my plan for the hill thing of this episode is we're going to start with the French revolution then I'm going to talk about the author, Alexander mm-hmm. Dumas. Mm-hmm. Once we've stripped him completely naked, we're going to jump in with the Three Musketeers. Exciting. Before we do, do you have any questions or anything in particular right off the bat that you know you want to know? Um, you know, it's funny because I went to Versailles for the first time. <gasps> yes. And um, I, we walked through the entire castle. Amazing. And when we got out, I said, so what happened with the French Revolution thingy? <laughs> Are you serious? I said it. I did. And I was serious. And what did he say? <laughs> he, to Does he his know? credit. 
Because not all Americans don't know about the American Revolution. It's not... Oh, they know. Yeah, all the French, they they fucking know. (laughs) Okay, good. Good, good, good. Well, you're going to know. Yeah. (laughs) You're going to know. What did he... How did he answer you, though? I'm very curious. He, like, kind of explained it, but I was like... He was like, you don't know? And I was like, no. Well, oh my God, I'm so, then this is going to be even more, this is going to be even more thrilling. You are about to really stick it to him. I'm oh. telling you, your Trivial Pursuit Nights are going to get a lot more lucrative for you. And at the beginning, I do have a gift for you. I got you your own copy oh. of The Three Musketeers. It is in English. It? Okay. Boo. It's in English, no, I know. And then this copy, which you're welcome to borrow, is mine, which is English on one page, French on the other oh, page. That's dope. It's such a fun story, too, and a, and a great read. So... Are you ready to fuck? Oh, yeah. The French Revolution. Okay. From the very beginning, the French Revolution is tied to the American Revolution. Okay. Okay. The French Revolution starts in 1789. That is the exact year we sign our Constitution. Mm. So we declared independence from Britain in 1776. But it takes fucking war. And then you got to fucking do the thing. Got to figure out how your government's going to run. Right? And all that shit. And as you may already know, the French are why we won. Mm Mm-hmm. We could not have won the revolution without the French's help. And the French were fine. Like, they liked Americans and the colonists fine. But really, they wanted to stick it to the British. Mm -hmm. Because if there's anybody that the French really fucking hate, you may have ascertained this for yourself. It's the fucking Brits. Right? It's been, that was Joan of Arc's beef was with the Brits. Uh It's just all the way, all the way down. Okay. So, at the end, by 1789, it is King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette they were the ones who gave us all that money. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that Benjamin Franklin was like, this would be soupy, soupy great if you guys could send us some francs in a hurry and maybe some boats. <laughs> and they did. And now they're tits deep in debt because it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't transactional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we weren't paying them allegiance. Right. We're not paying them taxes now. They just fought a big ass war for just to stick it to a guy. And they were already broke. And they're, and they're out of money. I mean, out of money. See, men are emotional. Uh, mm, exactly. <laughs> but And Marie Antoinette, what the fuck? She's from Austria. She got married off to this born-ass French... You know, she doesn't care. So they're still partying and, like, living in this high, affl- affluent fashion. And the peasants are starting to get disgruntled. And the Enlightenment guys in bars are starting to be like, why is the system even like this? You know, the Americans didn't do this. And there's a little bit of trouble. Uh-huh. So King Louis the Sixteenth in 1789 is like, I smell trouble. I totally know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call together the Estates General. There's no parliament. There's no house. There's no voting. There's no house of representatives. It's just the king and his council, whoever he wants to hear from. Uh And he's like, I'm going to, though, call together. It hasn't been called in 175 years. Uh The Estates General, which is representative from these three estates. So the way it's set up is the king is king is king is king. Then there's like uh, like a triangle of power. And at the top, you've got the clergy. They're the top estate, first estate. Second estate in the middle is the nobility, the like aristocracy. And that, and that's like, the clergy is like a thousand-ish people. The second estate is like a hundred thousand-ish people. And then the third estate is the peasantry, which is like 94 million people. 
Okay. Okay. And they have a few representatives from all these to come and talk to the king, uh-huh. right? And like, why Why are we so broke? <laughs> I don't even know. Like, this is crazy why we're so broke. And it's so obvious why we're broke, because you fucks can't stop spending money. And all you do is tax poor people to get the money back. Like, this isn't working. And in the midst of all this obvious, like, this is obvious. Everyone's looking at it, like, we know why you're fucking broke. It's because you're fucking up. And so they'd be like, that's an interesting idea, but here's how we're going <laughs> to figure this out is we're gonna have all three estates get one vote so the king's gonna like essentially the king poses a question how should we do this and then everyone gets a vote and the clergy and the aristocracy get each get one and the people so they'd be like i think we should raise taxes on poor people and the clergy would say yes and the aristocracy would say yes Uh so it's two to one right right and it's i mean it doesn't fucking work so this fuckery, clear. This is months. This is all happens within 1789. They're like, absolutely, this is so dumb. So by then, the, the whole third estate, with the help of these enlightened individuals, which includes Lafayette, who was a huge help to us in the Revolution and the American Revolution, um, George Denton and Robespierre, dun, 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 he's kind of a bad guy, spoiler alert, <laughs> get together the National Assembly, which is a whole new government. They're basically like, all right. Never mind. We're going to, again, taking a, taking a line from those old American colonies. We're just our own government. The whole third, we're going to break up. And they go to meet in these meeting houses to like, what do we want? What are our terms? They get locked out of those buildings. So they go to a tennis court and meet there. They have the tennis court oath where they're like, we're not fucking leaving until the king listens to our fucking demands. Wait. And they start getting so, right? They start getting so like... Grr, that they are aware we're probably going to get fucking annihilated. Because you know what happens at this part? Like right when we start to make shit for the bat, they get us and they annihilate us. So we're going to anticipate that they're about to annihilate us, basically. Mm -hmm. And they storm the Bastille. Because that's where all the guns are. Mm -hmm. And where they're locking up some of our favorite guys, right? They go in and they cut a guy's head off, put his head on a spike, steal all these guns. Actually, the best deals are second stop because they got guns at another place where they kill guys. And the best deals <laughs> where they need the gunpowder, but this is bad, right? Mm-hmm. And at this point, the folks who are in this National Assembly, your Robespierre, your Denton, your Lafayette, ha- are at a crossroads, which is like, are we violent cutting people's heads off, revolutionaries? Or are we, as the leaders of this, going to be like, no, no. That's not how we roll, mm-hmm. right? And um, maybe they could have decided not to be violent in that moment. I'm not even sure, really, with the way that history unfolded, if they would have been able to be like, let's pump the brake, guys. Because that same October of 1789, 7,000 fucking women, hungry-ass women who were like, I don't Yeah, this enlightened thing is so interesting. Bill of Rights, man's human rights is fascinating. I'm fucking hungry. My kids are fucking starving. We do not have enough bread. They're storing it in these places. All the rich people are eating fine. And they walk to Versailles. <laughs> okay? The place that you mm-hmm. saw. Because... The king and the queen have been like, Paris is so grouchy. And they just went to Versailles to like get away from how gross things were getting. I'm not kidding. And the women knew it. And we're like, oh, yeah, well, we're going. So they march to Versailles. They break in. Marie Antoinette escape, tries to get the fuck out of there. And they get them both. They're not exactly prisoners. But they can't exactly leave. And they come back to Paris. And this is where King Louis XVI starts like, I'm sorry, super sorry. You guys are the best. No, I'm serious. I've always loved the revolutionaries. Um, <laughs> this is actually great. I've, I've always been for this. And they start to slowly, the revolutionaries every week, every day, are like pulling like, don't wear these gorgeous clothes. Take the crown off. They make him wear the red revolutionary hat. And he's publicly like, I really do think this is a wonderful idea. 
In the meantime, our man Joseph Guillotine mm, mm, mm. has created an <laughs> instrument of egality and execution. His whole point was you should, if people got to die, they got to die. We don't need to draw and quarter them. We don't need to hang them and watch their bodies twist and cheer while their eyes is but That's terrible. That's really horrible stuff. We just go, bam, everybody, whatever your class, whoever you are, whatever you're guilty of, if it's execution, boom, bam, painless, done. And uh, lots and lots and lots of people are starting to get guillotined already. <laughs> and at one point, um, the king and the queen are like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get the fuck out of Paris. And they try to escape. And here's how they do it, Crystal. <laughs> Louis Sixteenth, Marie Antoinette, the richest people on the planet who have been bathed in diamonds since the instant they were born, pretend to be peasants. <laughs> get into a carriage and try to get out. Uh, I'm so poor. <laughs> we're so poor. So wait, so they oh yeah, because nobody had uh, carriages back then. Or well, like yeah, a thing I mean, that, that was like, like <laughs> phase one. They're like, we're, like we wore we're our peasants, grossest gowns. But we hopped into a Ferrari to get away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because if we took the Bentley, they'd, be, they'd know. <laughs> Shit gets crazy, okay? And the revolutionaries, when I say shit gets crazy... Lafayette and the founders of this violent wing of the National Assembly, immediately there's a division between them because it just gets so bloody and so nuts right away. Lafayette has to flee for a while and Robespierre becomes this real dark character. One of the things they do in this early part of the revolution is abolish religion. Religion is illegal. It's part of the way that they get rid of the clergy. So they destroy most religious icons in almost every religious house. And Robespierre creates the cult of reason and suggests <laughs> that instead, like they're replacing the atheistic religion with this age of reason, kind of Roman, kind of whatever. And they throw a festival, um, a festival of the cult of reason on June of 1794. And it becomes clear real quick that he goes from there's no God He's just leaning real easy into like, or I'm God. It's like, we're not clear. Is it all God? Or maybe I'm God. In any event, I'll tell you what God wants. It's not important. Don't worry about it, right? At this point, we have gone through what's called the reign of terror, where they have guillotined, listen to this number, 40,000 people. 40,000. You got guillotined. If you were like, God, I just think it's kind of bloody and gross that we're killing so many people. You're questioning the revolution. You're guillotined. People are turning in their neighbors. I mean, it is a dark, dark and really, really scary time. Shortly after the festival, this is in June of 1794. And by the festival, I mean, he stands on a hill in this festival of the cult of reason. And everyone's like, shit. One month later in July, he goes to the General Assembly, the, the new government, and is like, I have a brand new list of people that are supposed to get guillotined, but I'm not even going to tell you guys who's on it yet because it's some of you. And they're like, yeah, okay, we're going to guillot- And they guillotine <laughs> Robespierre. So how long does that take before when he says it? That's in 1794. So, ten- and- so a lot of people say the French Revolution started in 1789 and ends with the execution of Robespierre in 1794. That okay. is absolutely not when the French Revolution ends. Uh-huh. Because what we actually have is three more revolutions because it doesn't really calm down. You know uh-huh. what I mean? So, uh, for example, Napoleon who you've heard of him, right? Yeah. Little guy, very angry. He's actually average for his time, but that's not important. That he's remembered <laughs> as small is significant. 
Napoleon comes up in the army during the French Revolution because in the middle of all of this super duper chaos in the city, which is five, six years of just like God doesn't exist. The women are marching. There's heads everywhere. People are getting pulled out of prison, just burned in death, like crazy, crazy chaos. What we frankly fear when we look at the worst case scenarios, whenever people really start to rant and rave about the end of democracy and stuff, we're like, well, it's not like you're dragging people into their homes and executing them for not voting for who you wanted. Oh, wait, that actually happens every once in a while. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's happening at home. And at the same time, get this, the French fucking declare war on Austria. Like what? <laughs> and it's in part because Marie Antoinette, but also because the European countries all around France are like, man, there's such a thing with monarchies. All these monarchies are being questioned. So all the monarchies and all these little countries are like, fuck no. We got to put this down if only because we got to maintain the general rule of order here in Europe, right? So they start these wars with Austria and France, and, or Austria and um, Spain and Portugal and Britain and Germany, always, right, Britain. Um, and Napoleon is this fucking amazing general who is kicking ass, winning unbelievable against all odds. He's like the George Washington of France because he's low born. He didn't have a ton of experience. His father is a nobody. And just by being that great and being this good at war, he is saving his country and proving individualism and all of these amazing things that the revolution is all about. He at one point is out on the battlefield doing his thing. And he's like, by the way, what the fuck is going on with the revolution at home? <laughs> like, how is that going with all the stuff? And he's brought like six months worth of newspapers or news the equivalent of the newspapers to read. And he reads them all in one night and is like, I got to go back to Paris right now. Oh my God. So Napoleon basically goes back to Paris and like exploits the fact that there is no one at the helm. And, and arguably, depending on who's telling you the history, they needed somebody to come crack some skulls because every time somebody kind of came to power, guillotine them, just wanting power meant you had get. And then there's divisions. There's the war. There were a bunch of people that were in the Kings, the Royal army that um, defected immediately to go over to the national guard. And then they split in half and like they fire on each other. It was chaos, complete chaos. So Napoleon comes in and is like, I know exactly what to do. I'll be emperor. <laughs> And easy. Uh, easy. And that was it. I mean, it was a little more complicated than that. But for our purposes, that's what happened. He started off first console for life and then was like, mm, or emperor, I'll be emperor. But he still goes out and continues to do war. And here's what's going on in America. He is the one who legislates the Louisiana Purchase. So Thomas Jefferson is now president in the United States of America. We have gone from George Washington to John Adams down to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is looking west and he has purchased most of the land in the United States from our buddy Napoleon at this point. And Napoleon does it because they are out of fucking money again. Merde. So now France is a little bit calmed down at home. The war is out here and Napoleon continues to kick ass at war and the Europeans come after him. It is Russia, Prussia, Austria, the UK, Sweden, Spain, and Portugal in various configurations at various times send six different like missions to get Napoleon. One fails, two, three, four, all fail. Five fails. Finally, the sixth one, they defeat Napoleon's army. He's unpopular at home. There's already a hot fucking bed ready to, yeah, we love devouring fucking leaders. And he gets, um, he gets exiled to a place called Elba, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And it's a saddle island and he's there for a while, right? Did you know, do you know what happens next? I'm very curious because this is like one of my favorite little hilf nuggets of all time. 
Most people know Napoleon was exiled. Yes. But do you know what happened after he was exiled to Elba? I I don't remember, but I think at some point somebody must have told me because it's <laughs> what you're saying is starting to sound familiar to me. Yeah. I don't know what happens next. Okay, fuck yes. up. <laughs> Not only does Napoleon escape, he like sneaks onto some little boat that had pulled up for some reason. He obviously there was some bribe. Who knows, right? He escapes. He gets back to France on this boat finds his army, like a huge group of his soldiers, and is like, hey, guys. And they're like, fucking A, it's Napoleon. And his soldiers love him. And one of the reasons his soldiers love him is because he's one of them. He's not one of these aristocratic dickheads. And he does things like, say, go ahead and loot and pillage. Uh We don't have any money. We're not feeding you. So when you take over a place, take whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Soldiers love that stuff, right? (laughs) So they see him and they're like, it's our guy. And he's like, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. (laughs) Getting the band back together. They get back to France. Crystal, he is reinstated (laughs) for 100 days. And goes back to war with Europe. I mean, unbelievable that even that Paris was like, yeah. we um, are so glad you're back. <laughs> None of us have anything to do with anything. But you're not apparently mad at us. You're really still with this beef with Europe. He goes and he loses in the Battle of Waterloo. Uh-huh. Is exiled again. <laughs> this time he is sent out to the island of St. Helena, which is in the middle of fucking nowhere. Very cold. Can't get out. And he... Pretty much plays cards and bitches uh-huh. until he dies at the age of 51 in 1821. That's so sad. <laughs> it is kind of so sad. Any questions about the French Revolution stuff? I feel like that gives us our baseline for what we need to know to really get the panties off of the musketeers. I mean, I didn't know about the women like marching. I didn't realize it was like a bunch of women. Bunch of women. And, and Napoleon that- kind of screwed the women over, actually, because... There were some incredibly progressive movements in the French Revolution they put into their documents and made sort of fundamental. And one of them was an incredible amount of rights that were newly appointed to women, including hereditary, like ownership rights. Hmm. Um, And Napoleon took a lot of that away when he went, when he got the throne. He was good for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. He was like, there's no state religion, but there's also no persecution. You can worship. So it was good for the Jews, bad for the women. Mm Mm-hmm. You make you win some, you lose some. <laughs> you ditch Napoleon? The next part of our hilfing is the author of The Three Musketeers, Alexander Dumas. Do you know anything about him? I know that he is part black. Yes, he is. He's one quarter black. Yeah. And that's why we actually start with his dad. Mm-hmm. Because his dad is Thomas Alexander Dumas. And mm-hmm. he is, he's tits deep in all this stuff. That we just talked about. So Alexander Dumas' dad was born the son of a white French nobleman and his enslaved woman. Her name is Marie Celeste Dumas Mm -hmm. on the island of Haiti. The laws in France at the time is they had abolished slavery. Haiti, not only was slavery legal, but the son of a slave, however the paternal was, was an enslaved person also. So Alexander Dumas' dad takes him back to France when he's about five years old. And it is this crazy fuckery 
of like, because his dad was also broke. And so it was like, he he was a noble, he was a marquee, but his estate was not secure. And he had some beef with his brothers. So he like legally sold Thomas Alexander Dumas, his half black son, to another passenger on this boat, which paid his fare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when they got to France, he purchased him back. Wow. Okay. Right? Then they get to Paris, and he enrolls him in military school and tries to give him a particularly French noble upbringing to the extent that he could, being half black. Um, And he does fairly well, and he excels really well in this military school. But when it comes time to enlist in the actual army, even though he has a noble name, he cannot get in to an enlistment because he's half black. So the only way for him, he could get to that level, but he'd have to be promoted from a private. And at this point, his father says, I can't have our name in a pri- as a private in the military. Okay. So that is when he takes his enslaved mother's name, mm. Duma. He also has a falling out with his father. There's, and I scoured, man, to try to figure out what happened. But he not about the time he takes his mother's name, he also cuts off contact with his father. He doesn't really take any of the benefits of his father's nobility after wow. that. I don't know how much was available, mm-hmm. but he doesn't benefit. The rest of his life, everything he gets is from his military service. He is the first, they call him Afro Antilles, as his genealogy, to reach the level of general in the French military. He just kicks ass. He ends up fighting along with Napoleon. And do you remember when I told you that Napoleon told his army to loot and pillage? Yeah. That was the first time that Thomas Alexander Dumas stepped up to Napoleon and said, I don't think that we should be doing this. First of all, it's technically illegal. Like, technically, we're not supposed to do it. But also, it doesn't live up to the, the tenets of the revolution, mm-hmm. which are egality. Mm-hmm. And these, are, these people are technically every class. And Napoleon not only didn't like hearing no, but he ended up writing him out of a number of successes that he was a part of in some of these mm. campaigns, including, you know, glorious artwork that ha- that he, Thomas Alexander Dumas, was the hero of that they would paint with someone else of white skin and just sort of write him out of the history altogether. It gets worse. He eventually, in one of his campaigns, gets captured and imprisoned. And Napoleon does nothing to release him. And he is basically imprisoned for like two years on this horrible island. He goes blind in one eye. He's completely malnourished. His body starts to get deformed. Mm -hmm. Then, in 1803, when Napoleon is now emperor and they win, he is released and he goes home and marries an innkeeper's daughter and has three kids. But Napoleon denies him his military pension. Mm. So his children are born into poverty. Mm -hmm. Alexander Dumas is three years old when his father dies. And his mother raises him with the stories of his father's legendary status. Mm -hmm. And he goes out and sees his dad is somebody out there in the world and people cared, but he's so broke, right? He can't do the thing. So his uh, skill is in writing. And one of the things he has is exceptional handwriting. So he goes to Paris and becomes a scribe for somebody. Eventually writes his first novel and he sells only four copies. Now, here's one of the things that is dominating for Alexander Dumas' life story. And it, it permeates in and out all this stuff. Is this inadequacy. His dad was this guy. He was the hero of battles. He was the hero of France. He stood up to Napoleon and he... Alexander Dumas is just a writer. Mm-hmm. It is part of his tortured, like, writer mentality. T- you know what I mean? Tortured artist thing throughout. 
Um, and he wants to be huge. And eventually he gets big by writing plays. He starts looking through the pages of history and he's got a buddy who is helping him write a lot of various things. And um, they basically find a great historical tale and then make it up. <laughs> and then flip it on his head, make up the characters and kind of keep it semi-appropriate. And he writes this play called Christine and Henry III. And they're huge. He meets Victor Hugo. He's meeting these other huge French uh, writers and he becomes rich. He gets a ton of money and he starts to make proper money. Um, and he gets sponsored by a guy named the Duke of, Dor of Orleans, who is uh, related to royalty. Definitely a rich guy. Gonna keep him rolling in loot. And um, in 1832, there is another fucking revolution. And all of a sudden, the guy who's sponsoring Alexander Dumas, the, the Duke of Orleans, becomes king. He's now Louis-Philippe I. And Alexander Dumas is in a bit of a fucking bind because his dad is a hardcore Republican and Republicans don't do kings. And now he's working for a king. Mm -hmm. And the revolutionaries are like, you can't like this is we are anti-monarchists and your father. And what is he going to do? Right. So he participates in some revolutionary acts against Louis Philippe the first and ends up hiding runs off to Austria for a while and like hides for a while and in Italy and is like afraid that he's going to be arrested and thrown in jail by the king and what happens is the July monarchy this Louis Philippe's the first reign they come down hard on the revolutionaries and then forgive everybody <laughs> you know what I mean basically are like absolutely not it's not fucking happening again and then but don't it, it's not that big of a deal to, you know, trying not to breed more enemies. So Alexander Dumas, like, comes back to Paris. And it's kind of a bummer. Like, he was about to be truly persecuted in a way that he kind of wanted to be persecuted for <laughs> politics, you know? And he could, and it, and he just got welcomed back. But he found out he can write travel. He wrote about his travels. Uh -huh. So he's making money with that kind of stuff. And even though he should have a ton of money, um, Alexander uh, Dumas also has at least four illegitimate children and minimum of 40 mistresses. And this is a generous, but I mean, it is crazy when you start looking through the historical documents of this stuff and they're like, yeah, let's see. There were 12, 20 something actresses. And then there were like four, um, hotel, uh, managers. And then there was also a screen. I mean, he was just everybody all the time. And he would like buy a house and it would just be fuck town. And everyone <laughs> would come to fuck town and like eat all of his food. And then like he would pay all the bills and then run out of money. And he was supporting all of these kids. And so he could never quite keep money. Nick Cannon. Of <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. Alexander Dumas at the end of his life, he's very sad. He wants to get involved in something that will matter. And so he comes back to Paris and he tries to get involved in the then National Assembly, another sort of revolutionary government opportunity. And at this point, it has become even more racist than it was when his father was elevated to the level of general. And he cannot believe how limited he is rich. He is famous. He's lost some of his money, but his name is still everywhere. And he would go into like the meeting house where as you present yourself as like a potential nominee and they would chant ho ho negro until he left. I mean, it was not even like polite French. It was very overt and it was dominating. So he removed himself and thought he was something of a failure for that reason. Mm -hmm. He, um, one of the most exciting things that I found was that he was also into drunks. He was in a monthly drug club that included <laughs> Victor Hugo and other uh, French writers of the time. A drug of the month club? It is. It was. <laughs> once a month. 
They called themselves the Hashishans. Oh, no. <laughs> and they met once a month at a hotel in Paris and just got weird. I honestly, I love the, the honestly, the fact that they've combined drugs with being on time and at a place somewhere once a month. <laughs> like, it's so responsible at yeah. the same, you know what I mean? Like It is. It is. It's like a book club. Only when you open the book, it's just drugs in there. It's it's, it's definitely a writer's drug club. It, That's... Is, it is. But they would have, they said, like these trays out with like various ways to consume. You could smoke it. You could eat it. Very exciting. I love it. I know. Me too. <laughs> um, sadly, um, our guy dies fairly young in 1870 at the age of 68. He had been living rent-free by necessity with his son for the last 10 years of wow. his life. And he, one of the last things that he said was, I hope I am remembered for something. And it is true that all for one and one for all is something that has certainly outlived any of the names of any of the revolutionaries that he was hanging out with. Mm-hmm. This is just, it's so fascinating. And I just, I just also uh, went to the Victor Hugo Museum. So this is so nice. <laughs> um, okay, well, I'm going to... Um, Crawl up into bed here and cuddle up with your pillow, and then we'll be back for part two. (laughs) Hi there, I'm Laurel. And I'm Katie. Two sisters who love talking about history, and we are the hosts of Hightailing Through History. In each episode, we surprise each other with a story about the unknown or unusual bits of history that make the past a goldmine of fun. A Chinese sex worker turned pirate queen who had the largest fleet in history. How one of the world's greatest generals was defeated by an army of rabbits. And what real-life person inspired the Mortal Kombat character, Scorpion. In addition to hightailing through different people, places, and events in history, we are also telling our tales, Hi, Laurel, our resident stoner, but I prefer boozing. But you don't have to enjoy those things to enjoy our podcast. We've staged you a seat in our smoke circle. Come relax, have a laugh, and enjoy history's weird and wonderful moments as we hightail through history. That's hightailing through history. You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Have an anecdote about Marie Antoinette? Did I omit something critical? Maybe you have a question about a source or a guest. Well, let me know. You can email the show, hilfpodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Instagram at hilfpodcast. And while you're there... We are back. Hey. <laughs> Normally when I have people over to my house, I'm always like plying them with booze and <laughs> cannabis. And I feel like I should just be bringing people into my bed. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to get to is just like a chill vibe. Like I should have been doing this from the very beginning. Um, so we are now, we're going in yeah. on these musketeers. So here's what I want to know from you. What do you know already about the story, the characters? What, is, what, is, what do you have on these guys? So I did watch the movie, the movie from the nineties. Okay, I was gonna. So three. There's a, there's yes. been a gazillion of these movies. Yeah, there are. There's the nineteen yeah. forties with Gene Kelly. Absolutely not. Nineteen seventies with Michael York. No. Mm-hmm. And the nineteen nineties with the Chris ni- O'Donnell. Yes, the nineteen nineties <laughs> one for sure. Watch that one, and then also, I think. Because don't they also appear in Man in the Iron Mask or no? You know, I didn't do as much 
reason it is all in that same time frame same thing with like the count of monte cristo has mm-hmm. to do with like revolutionaries yes but I, you know what that's a good question i don't know if Dart- if d'artagnan athos porthos and artemis show up they show up in another one because mm-hmm. i remember watching i think it might might have been man in the iron mask because i remember watching it did the one with leonardo dicaprio it, of course <laughs> yeah of course uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. um i Remember being like, he's so cute. We're going to put him in this thing. We're going to put him <laughs> yeah. in this mask. Like, wow. That's okay. But... Um, and I, I, there's part of me that thinks that I might have even read it, like, just to be like a nerd and be like, I also mm. read it. Like, Les trois mousquetaires. But I, I for sure don't remember any. Yeah. Well, it's good. And I, I don't mean, know the history really, of it. I do recommend it. It's a really fun, it's a really fun book to read. Mm-hmm. But it is a historical fiction. So mm-hmm. it is wordy and long and flowery and colorful. But, you know, what the fuck? If, you, if you're taking a bunch of, you're, you're going to be on the bus a lot. You know, you're going to be on the back of an Uber now. Yeah. You don't got a car. So you're going to need that. I imagine the subways of New York are a great place to read <laughs> yes. The Three Musketeers. We learned about the French Revolution. We mm-hmm. learned about our guy, Alexander Dumas. Mm-hmm. So he writes The Three Musketeers in 1844. We're entering a new revolution, which is the Industrial Revolution. The, the fact is the world has changed. So whether or not Europe is going to be able to hold on to their monarchies or not, we've got steam engines coming, mm-hmm. literally <laughs> right for your front door. And um, and in 1844, in the United States, we're ha- we have westward expansion. James K. Polk, episode four of Hilf. Um, he's the one with the mullet. Um, James K. Polk is president and he starts heading west. The railroad starts going west. We get all the way to California and um, the Mexican-American War is ending. So we got cowboys all up in this business. So this is when he's writing The Three Musketeers and it's set in 1625. Mm -hmm. So it is sort of like right now an author setting their story in 1776 because it can speak to right now. Yeah. So there's always a reason you set your historical fiction when you do like the crucible, which is about the Salem witch trials Mm -hmm. in the 1950s when we had the red scare and McCarthyism and everyone's hunting down communists. Mm -hmm. Right. There was a reason why we had to go a few hundred years back to tell a story that was going to speak so much to like what's going on right now, because we can't hear if you start saying Republican and Democrat, Everyone's going to shut down yeah. because we're too in that right now. Yeah. But if you start talking about Jefferson and Hamilton, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. I can listen for a minute <laughs> before <laughs> before I, I duck out. So The Three Musketeers takes place before Louis XVI. Mm-hmm. It's still the ancient regime. So it's still that like three the the three estates and like the old school pre-revolution life and it's not necessarily that that's romanticized it's what makes the three musketeers i think given like what we've already learned about the revolution it just puts it in such technicolor for us so here's the the quick plot all right of the three musketeers just to get your arms around it we've got our characters d'artagnan He's the lead. He's Chris O'Donnell. Okay. And then you've got Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. They are the three musketeers. Um, I believe in the 90s version, Kiefer Sutherland is our Athos. I think Jeremy Irons is Artemis. Was there a and black Christa- one? And Platt. Oliver oh. Platt. No, I don't think they didn't have a black one in the 90s. They weren't ready. We just got good with dinosaurs, okay? <laughs> we brought dinosaurs back to life. We're not too that progressive yet. Um, so we've got... Uh, so these are the three musketeers. Athos is a little older. He's sad. He's a drunk. He has a dark past. Porthos is the funny, dandy Oliver Platt. 
Artemis is clergy, kind of a low-ranking member of the clergy, and a womanizer, Jeremy Irons. <laughs> what they don't usually put in any of the uh, movie versions, but is in the book, is that all of the Three Musketeers have servants. Okay. That have really interesting personalities and interact with this story in kind of clever and interesting ways, but they don't... I, I haven't seen any movie versions that include all the servants. D'Artagnan is this poor kid from Gascony in the middle of nowhere. His dad is poor but proud, you know, and he's been given this humble, and his dad says, go to Paris, right? It's time to go to Paris, do something with your life. Here's a sword, here's a horse, and here's a letter for the guy who runs the Musketeers, introducing yourself, because this guy who runs the Musketeers, the king's important guard, the king's best army, right? Um, he's just like you. He's a poor guy from the middle of nowhere. We used to know each other, so you bring this letter from me, you introduce yourself, you're going to do great. And remember, don't take shit anybody you're just as good as anybody else all right so d'artagnan's like you got it. he's like and he says specifically if anyone says shit you do, you start a duel even though duels are technically made illegal at this particular time so d'artagnan heads to paris and on his way crazy encounters he meets these three individual guys on three individual places they all slight him in some way that, <laughs> that offends him deeply he challenges them to a duel and these duels by the way are to the death Right, the idea is he's not gonna try. And he it makes one for you know, various times throughout the day, all in this one park, and he's like, Oh my god, I'm fucking up, you know, but I'm gonna I have to, I have to stand up to my name. So he goes to the park to meet for the first duel, and it is with Athos, and Athos has as his second these other two musketeers. And they're like, You can't fight this guy, we're gonna fight this guy. We all have duels with this same as it's crazy. And right when they're about to start their duel, the Cardinal Richelieu's evil guards come to like stop it and they're all like ah all for one one for all d'artagnan fights alongside the three musketeers against richelieu's guards from here on out we have this fantastic adventure story <laughs> that involves the king who's sort of a funny ineffective monarch which is important as you can imagine in 1844 if you're gonna write a story about the king that happened before the revolution he can't be great right mm -hmm. Um, and his wife, Queen Anne, is having an affair with the Duke of Buckingham, who's English. Oh, okay. intrigue. Okay. <laughs> then you have the Cardinal Richelieu, who's a bad guy. Easy to make fun of the church. There is nothing wrong with saying that priests <laughs> and members of the clergy are bad. Um, but they can't necessarily make him the ultimate villain because of things that are stirring in 1844. So what you end up getting is just this really dope story with these really believable characters. Everyone's great. Everyone's flawed. The musketeers are alcoholism. They're womanizers. They're flawed characters. They're bad. They steal sometimes. But they're always, always super loyal friends. Mm. Right. The king is does some good things and helps the musketeers out and does some maneuvering to get them what they want. But he can't be trusted. And they are screwing him over and hiding his wife's affair. And, you know, and his I mean, it's just great. And it was printed originally as this serial that would come out every week in these newspapers. And people completely loved it. There's also a ton of sex um, Constance, who is like the ingenue that D'Artagnan falls in love with. Um, is a married woman in the books. Almost all of the movies make her a young, single ingenue, and the man involved in her life is like her uncle or her dad or uh -huh. some other way to make it. Because even Dumas was like, nah, cheating on your wife is not that big of a deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Infidelity does not a bad guy make. Um, so they continue, they go back and forth. The three musketeers um, fight for each other. They split at some point. They all get separated. It's very exciting. 
there's a villainess named Milady de Winter who is working with Cardinal Richelieu to try to disgrace the king and solidate his power and create a war. And it turns out she is the evil ex-wife of none other than Athos, the dark, sad, drunk musketeer. And he's tortured by her. And then D'Artagnan kind of falls for her, Milady <laughs> de Winter. And then he cheats on Constance with with Milady de Winter, but then she ends up, Milady de Winter kills Constance to get back at D'Artagnan, but then Milady de Winter is executed and all of the musketeers go back to the court and the and the cardinal and the king do some very like, yeah, that's how it is, isn't it? And then all <laughs> and then they all are sort of disbanded to a life happily ever after. Um Alexander Dumas does write a sequel. So none of them die at mm-hmm. the end. So if you want to follow their exploits, there are um, further further stories. But that is generally the Three Musketeers. And among the reasons people loved it is because they're also flawed. So believable. It's intrigue. It's sex. It's chivalry. It is swashbuckling. Like, what's not to like? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like um, it's, it's the kind of thing where it is a job, much like his father, where somebody who is of nothing could become something. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that makes sense why it would have such mass appeal because people who are of upper class, you know, they probably know people that are, you know, came from nothing, but that's how they got their status. And then there's people who aspire mm-hmm. to be that, you know, who they aspire to move up the way that these people have moved up. And so it's really fascinating. And I wonder what the equivalent is for us now of that that role or that that thing where it's like you are still an everyday person somehow Mm -hmm. but you have you have the the respect of the upper classes because of this thing that you do i don't know that we have a specific equivalent i mean i think that we like to tell each other that it's still veterans Mm-hmm. But I think that we can just look around and point to the real life reality for veterans and see that they are not elevated and not celebrated all, yeah. and supported in like really consistent and tangible ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. Fire, like, you know, we do all this token stuff for these yeah. <laughs> emergency <laughs> workers. Yeah, I don't know. But I do think that that hero story of coming from nothing does still really resonate with people and a lot of times people are trying to emulate that people who do definitely come from something mm-hmm. like to kind of pull up some fake bootstraps that their dad gave them oh yeah <laughs> that they were able to pull up their dad's there's, bootstrap there's a lot you know? of <laughs> yeah um, it... but i also think that it, one of the interesting things about what duma does too is because you saw the way the revolution turned and turned and turned mm-hmm. so you know the the third estate is the response to the monarchy then the third estate splits the national assembly then lafayette's got to go the people who were guillotined by the guillotine included King Louis the Sixteenth, Marie Antoinette, Mister Guillotine, oh, Robespierre, God. George Denton. Most of the people who founded the Jacobins, this like violent wing, were all guillotined. It was this like just really. And then you would have no. The king is good. No, no kings can possibly be good. But then Napoleon was great in part because he came from nothing. Mm-hmm. So here's a story of somebody who came from nothing and was our hero for a minute and is now a disgrace mm-hmm. or at least uh, feckless. Mm-hmm. Even if we loved him, he was defeated and is living and died at 51 on an island, a defeated guy, you know? So you, and the same thing with the church, there were like 
some really, really terrible cardinals who like coordinated to execute and infiltrate and align with all of these evil sources. And then they would have these stories of these heroic priests who would save and hide and persevere through these. I mean, there was just no such thing as an iconic good guy, which is why something like this could happen. A a story like the three musketeers could happen. Yeah. You know, Um, but it does bring us to Victor Hugo because I want to just super quickly before we go, there's two other French literature icons that I have to mention in your bed uh, yes. with your French, your French <laughs> marital sheets. So Victor Hugo, we talked about a little bit. He wrote Les Miserables, um, which is a fantastic book, a great musical and an okay movie. Have you seen the play and or the movie? I've actually read the book. I have mm. seen several versions, several movie versions because there are there are multiple. There are. I've actually true. seen three. I'm positive that I've seen three movie versions of so Les Mis. So you're a fan. I'm a fan of Les Mis yeah. specifically, yeah. and probably. I mean, I did read Hunchback. So, uh-huh. but those are the only two things that I, you know, like that I knew about French literature at all. And I have seen the live musical, which is. <sighs> Phenomenal. In fact, at the end of the Victor Hugo Museum tour, they had um, they had like a statue of, I think, Eponine. And oh. I just I just did a video and I was like, and my husband was like, what are you doing? And I was like, you know. I like it all Oh, there is so I I can't sing. I'm not a singer, but I love musicals and I love me acting. Too. And it was so hard for me to realize that like that was not my lane. I was gonna have to be funny because I also wasn't hot. I'm like, oh no, you're not hot and you can't sing, girl. You gotta think of something quick or you're gonna have to get a job like everybody else. Um, but I saw Les Mis on a touring production in St. Paul, Minnesota. When I was in middle school, and it's definitely why I'm an actor. Uh-huh. Because I was like, girl, I am ready to fight and die for France. Yes, right? And and I think it's so funny is that none of... Even seeing that, I think what's funny is that in both of us, and in me, it launched a desire to be on the stage, mm-hmm. but not a desire personally to learn more about France. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what's so nuts? <laughs> You know me. I love history. I fuck history, girl. Even when no one has a microphone in my face, I am fucking history all the time. I can't stop. I am an actor because of Les Mis. And it took you in this episode for me to dig into the French Revolution. Why? Why? C'est très bon. It's very good. And it's so fascinating because get this. Okay, so now you know you love Les Mis. Okay, so... It is written about the revolution that took place in 1832. This Mm. is the one that was King Charles X. He's like, French Revolution happened and Napoleon happened. He Mm. comes back and is basically starts off okay. Does like, frankly, a tour. It's like, everybody, kings aren't so bad. (laughs) Kings aren't so bad. And then comes back to Paris and is like, I'm just going to super quick write out all of the progressive laws that were made during the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. It's called the Four Ordinances. And it is what gets the people to rise up and try to depose him, including our guy, Alexander Dumas. 
And so you have um, this story starts that Victor Hugo writes. Um, I think he wrote it in 1834. And most of the stuff that he included in Les Mis, he wrote, he saw, he observed on the streets of Paris. He saw, for example, a woman cutting her own hair and desperately trying to sell it. He saw the, a man fight violently to steal a piece of bread. And he would sort of write these things down as he went. Um, and of course, he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which also epitomizes a lot of that good, bad church, mm-hmm. peasant um, relationship. But that also was all about love. Victor Hugo, at the end of the day, love of child, romantic love, patriotic love, love of country, fraternite. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to <laughs> the last, the last of our guys <laughs> that I'm going to tell you about. Which is so perfect that we are just still snuggled up here in your bed. Um, And that would be the Marquis de Sade. Okay. What do you know about him? Nothing. So he is right about the same time, a little bit later. He was, he lived until 1814. So he died right about the time that Napoleon was permanently exiled. And he is where we get the word sadist from the Marquis de Sade because he was a sexual sadist he would he it wasn't just that he was because like you kind of think you know france in the 1800s like if you like a finger in your butt does that make you like the worst <laughs> like how far how far are our sexual proclivities here but he would like entrap people in his house and force them to perform sexual acts for days and he enjoyed beating people and inflicting pain and he was all over the place um he also believed that prostitution should not only be legal but paid for by the state oh my god so as to like alleviate people's lustful intentions. Um, he, at some point, cause he was sort of elevated. He's a marquee. He was born with money. He came from a wealthy family. At one point he hired a prostitute and kept her trapped in his house and asked her to do so many unspeakable things that when she was finally released, she got him arrested, which, you know, you can probably imagine how bad something has to be for a prostitute to go to the authorities in France yeah. in 18, and tell them a marquee is a psycho. Yeah. They have to be like, mm, that's real. Like, yeah, that'd be really bad. They get him, they arrest him, and he is imprisoned many, many times over the course of his life for various durations in various places, sometimes prisons, sometimes mental institutions. He was imprisoned for blasphemy, perversion, um, And one of the um, institutions in which he was uh, incarcerated for a while called the Charenton Asylum. And this is, I mean, the craziest of crazies. And they were sort of trying to like, yeah, you're in prison, but it doesn't have to be that bad. So they would allow him to write and perform plays within the asylum with the inmates as his cast. This happened over various periods of time. Eventually, new rulers in charge are like, similar to our prisons, and like, prison can't be this great. <laughs> like, that sounds too awesome. And it sounds like he's probably having a blast. So he has to go into solitary confinement for a while. The craziest thing is he, in 1790, gets out of an institution long enough to serve on the National Convention. Oh, my God. Because, like, we are so open-minded. We have no, you have no idea how open-minded we are. And then they were like, mm, mm, not that open-minded. And he got incarcerated um, again. If you really want to get in on the marquee, and who doesn't, um, there is a fantastic play called 
The persecution and assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Sheraton under direction of the Marquis de Sade. That's the name of the play. It was written in 1963 (laughs) um, by a German guy, surprise, named Peter Weiss. It's been on Broadway. It's a Tony winner. It's very cool. It's very weird. It's a play within a play. So it does take place in this insane asylum, but it's sort of like the guards are telling the inmates what to perform. And it's sort of like, they're trying to get to you. They're trying to overcome the censors and tell you the audience what actually happened. And it, but they're being overridden. It's very cool. It's very trippy. Um, it was exactly what people wanted to see in 1963. <laughs> and, um, and the title, as I said, is the assassination of Jean Paul Marat. And this is the story that I'm going to leave you with before okay. I exit your sheets. The start of the revolution, when they first go into the Bastille, cut off the first head, stick it on the first pike, and are like, is this what we're doing? And there was a little debate. The person who was writing the most feverently about, yeah, girl, this is exactly how we need to do this, was a guy named Jean-Paul Marat. He was an intellectual. He was into the Enlightenment. He was into the revolution. But he also had this crippling skin disease that meant he had to soak in a salt bath for hours and hours a day. And his head was always sort of wrapped and he was sort of a freaky dude, right? And he would write these messages, these letters and these essays that were like more blood, more murder. It's the only way they're ever going to listen to us. And he was, and it was, his stuff was like the most read stuff in Paris, even though he's just this freaky little angry guy sitting in this bath by himself. At one point, a woman from out in the country kind of sees this whole thing going down and is like, this guy's the problem. (laughs) This guy is the one who's making everybody so nuts. I know exactly what to do. Her name is Clara. So she heads to Paris and she says, I have a list of enemies, all of whom should be exposed and sent to the guillotine, but I'll only show it to you. And he goes, great, right? Right? The more the merrier. So she is permitted into his room where he's sitting in the bath and she stabs him in the fucking neck. Oh my kills God. Him. And then she is sent to the guillotine. And it'd be great if you'd said that and then that stopped the murders, but that murder doesn't generally stop murders. One other thing that happened, um, which I think precipitated my question about French literature is, um, so one day my husband and my stepdaughter were around the table and they were repeating a rhyme. They were repeating a rhyme in French. And I was like, what's that? And so they translated it to me and it was essentially the tortoise and the hare. Mm. And I was like, oh, Aesop's Fables. And they're like, no. And then they said this name. I forget the name. We probably should look it up so that okay. people know. Uh-huh. Um, they're like, no, that's such and such. I go, mm, mm, well, okay, well, maybe that, maybe he put it into a rhyme. But the tortoise and the hare is an Aesop fable. It's, as old as they get. Yeah. Yeah. And they go, what? And then so I look it up and I show them. They're like whoa and there was like several aesop's fables that at some point had been turned into french rhymes for school children yes they had no idea who aesop was they literally only knew this guy who come they thought he wrote like he they thought he came up with this the original story this guy literally weird al yankovic his way (laughs) into these children's homes oh my goodness oh my god (laughs) I hope that you feel that you are now like 
more informed that when Absolutely. when you can be like, oh yeah, oh Versailles, yeah, <laughs> yes, I know all about it. I will. I hope you enjoy reading The Three Musketeers. Thank you so much. And that um, you can stick it to that French husband of yours once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me in your bed. Yay, thanks for coming. Well, that was the second best time I've ever had in bed with a guest. But that's only because I've recorded with my husband a couple of times. (laughs) Oh, thanks again to Crystal Adams and her husband Fabrice for having me. Please follow her and go listen to her comedy album, Ain't I a Wombat, available now on YouTube. It's hysterical. As for us, we have a new Hilf episode every other Wednesday, and next time I am joined by actor, writer, and puppeteer Andy Kraft for the Hilfing of the Donner Party. Oh yeah, the tragic tale of the westward wagon train that descended into madness and cannibalism over a winter stuck in the Sierra Nevadas. Ooh, it is a perfect companion as you travel over the holidays. <laughs> in the meantime, our theme song was composed and performed by Cat. Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode, or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. This has been Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming. (laughs) 